And would you join me in prayer? Oh Lord, we are, <clears throat> we are so thrilled that we have the opportunity to open your word before us. We thank you for it. We thank you that you've given us a glimpse into your desires, your will, your mind, and your word. You've given us something to teach, something of eternal importance, not just temporal importance. You've given us your word that challenges our doctrine when it's wrong and that challenges the direction of our lives when we are going in the wrong way. You've given us your word inspired by your spirit that teaches us and trains us to live righteous lives and to serve you righteously. Thank you for it. Help us to hear it. Help us to really listen. Help us to understand and apply your word to our lives. Lord, I never want to miss an opportunity in these Sunday services to thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and his willingness to go to the cross in our place and take our sin upon his sinless, innocent body and open the door to heaven for us by simply believing in him and his finished work. If there's even one here who has not yet made that decision, who has not yet placed their faith in your son alone, not in good things they do, not in religion or ritual, but in Jesus, I pray that they would this day. Now, Lord, please guide us in this study. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage this morning, Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through chapter 5, verse 11. And you might also see, say the book of Acts itself portrays the church as a family that looks out for its own. It portrays the church as a family, a family that cares for its own. Now, we might say that many of us did not come from exactly perfect families, right? Uh, I, I fear to say, how many of us came from perfect families? Don't raise your hands. Okay, I would dare to say there aren't many of us that have come from perfect families. In fact, I like what Eugene Peterson said, the biblical material consistently portrays the family not as a Norman Rockwell group, beaming in gratitude around a Thanksgiving turkey, but as a series of broken relationships in need of redemption. That's a great description. He goes on to say, at the very least, this means that no one needs to carry a burden of guilt because his or her family is deficient in the sweetness and light that Christian families are supposed to exhibit. Since models for harmonious families are missing in Scripture... Peterson says, and for that omission, I am repeatedly grateful to the Holy Spirit. We are free to pay attention to what is there. A promise of new community, which experiences life as the household of faith, a family of Christ. That's what 
Acts chapter 4 is talking about this new community, this new family that you and I become a part of it when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And Acts chapter 4 is particularly important to the family because what Luke is trying to communicate to us is that the family of God faces a greater threat from sin within than from persecution without. Let me say that again because that's a key point. The family of God, the church, faces a greater threat from sin in the church, sin in the body, than it does from persecution without. The church, we see clearly in Acts 4.32-5.11, through 5.11, is a family a family that meets each other's needs, a family that used their resources to care for each other, a family that expressed their unity in that way. They were a family who prayed for us, a family who prayed for each other, a family who provided for each other, who cared for each other, who encouraged each other's. The setting of Acts 4 32 to 5, 11 is important. The setting is this. It follows the first incident of persecution in the life of the church. We've been studying that the last several weeks. The persecution that is just beginning and will get greater and greater and greater and will continue. And indeed, it will continue through the pages of Scripture and it will continue through the years of history, right up to and including today. The church is persecuted. So the setting of this passage is it follows the first incident of persecution in the church. But the main point that Luke is trying to communicate is this, that God is concerned for the purity of His church. And so He does something spectacular at the beginning of the church's existence, as we're going to see in Acts chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, God is concerned for the purity of His church. Sin within the church is the real enemy of the church, not persecution without. You see, it's a sad thing that you and I, we look at persecution, and folks, it may be coming for us, who knows? It's always, by the way, coming for the church. We're not unique in that in our time. Persecution is always coming for the church. But we have a tendency to focus on that as if that's our biggest threat. And what Luke is trying to tell us in our passage this morning is our biggest threat isn't persecution from out there. It's sin from in here. It's sin from in here. The passage requires us to ask two questions of ourselves. And we'll talk about this. I'll just give them to you now and we'll talk about, we'll mention them once again when we finish this morning. The passage requires us to ask two questions. Number one, how am I using my gifts, my talents, and my resources to build unity in the body? How am I using my gifts, my talents, and my resources to build unity in the body. And the second question that 
this passage calls us to ask ourselves is this, am I dealing with the wrong attitudes and wrong actions in my life? The Bible calls it sin. Am I dealing with the sin in my life? Am I dealing with the sin in my life? That's kind of a capsule of where we're headed this morning. God is concerned, as we said, for the purity of the church. And we're going to see that as we go through this passage of Scripture. Well, look with me at chapter 4 and verse 32. There are two reasons that Luke shares this in addition to what we've already just talked about. And the two reasons are this. Number one, to introduce Barnabas to us. In this passage, we'll be introduced to Barnabas. And Barnabas becomes a very important person on the pages of Scripture. He will be mentioned some 25 times in the book of Acts. He will be mentioned five times in the epistles. He's a very important person in the Scripture. And this passage is meant to introduce him to us. By the way, this is a technique of Luke's to mention somebody or something about somebody early and then later expand upon them. He does this with Saul. The first time we see Saul in the Scriptures, who later becomes Paul, is when? Who remembers? The stoning of Stephen. He was holding the cloaks, right? And all we're told is that there was a young man named Saul holding the cloaks while Stephen was being stoned to death. But it was Luke's way to introduce him And then later we'd learn a lot more about Stephen. Well, he's doing that here. So one of the reasons, other than to show us the seriousness of sin and God's seriousness about the purity of his body, is that to introduce us to Barnabas. It's also another reason that Luke includes this is to contrast Barnabas' generosity and the generosity of the whole church with the selfishness of Ananias and Sapphira with the selfishness of our Ananias and Sapphira. Thirdly, to show that the greater threat, as we've been talking about, to the church is from within rather than without. From within rather than without. Well, all the believers were one in heart and mind. There we see the unity. They were unified. Heart and mind means they were unified spiritually. They were unified spiritually. And then Luke's going to use the rest of this chapter in the beginning of chapter 5 to show us that they were unified materially as well. They were unified spiritually and they were unified materially. They shared everything, Luke tells us. They shared everything. Now, the question comes, and then we're going to learn as we read through here, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There was no needy person among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need." 
So Luke introduces the unity of the church, the spiritual unity of the church, one in heart and mind, and then he illustrates that unity for us by the fact that many in the church sold some kind of property they had, they laid the proceeds at the feet of the apostles, and the apostles distributed to those who had need. Now there are those who wrongly call this Christian communism or Christian socialism. It is not communism. It is not socialism. There are some important distinctions. Let me give them to you real quickly. Number one, this was voluntary. No one made these people give up their property. No one made these people sell their property. Only those who desired, led by God, led by the Spirit of God, only those who desired to sold property. And not even all their property. But only those who desired, those whom God led to do that, sold their property. It was entirely voluntary. The distribution was not equally distributed to all, as in socialism and communism. At least that's the theory. I won't get into the politics. Socialism and communism never work, except for politicians. So I told you I wasn't going to get into the politics. <laughs> <laughs> First thing is it was voluntary. Secondly, it was distributed according to need, not equally to all. If a person had a need, that need, and it was a legitimate need, that need was taken care of. That need was taken care of. That's, that's what's going on here. It's not socialism. It's not communism. Number three, others in the church retained their property. They had the right to retain property under socialism and communism. It's taken from you by the government. In this case, the people of the church had the right to retain their property. A very prime example of that is Mary, the mother of John Mark. Her home is where the early church met much of the time. She didn't sell her home. She didn't sell her home earlier. She didn't sell her home at this time. How do we know that? Because when we get to Acts chapter 12, the church is gathered at her home, which she still owns, praying for Peter's release from prison. Do you remember that passage? I love that passage because I love the humor in Scripture. I love the humor in Scripture. Remember, John had already been murdered. Peter is arrested, and, they, and uh, they were looking forward to putting Peter to death, the government was. And the church said, we have got to pray. So they went to Mary's house, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, please, Lord, release Peter. And you know what happened, right? God sent angels, and they released Peter. And Peter goes to Mary's house. And the servant girl comes to the door and says, Who is it? It's Peter. Can't be Peter. We're praying for him to be released from prison. <laughs> I love that. Don't you like that? It can't be him. We're praying for him. Woo. Okay. 
Where were we? Okay, yeah, number one, it was voluntary. <laughs> number two, it was not distributed <coughs> equally to all. It was distributed to those in need. Number three, some still kept their property. They had the right of possession. They retained their property. Number four, it was a temporary arrangement. It was a temporary arrangement. We don't see this actually happening throughout the church. And there are actually those who believe. Remember later on, uh, Paul took a, an offering for the church in, uh, church in uh, Palestine in Jerusalem because it was in such desperate need. Some think that that need arose out of this action on their part. So this is not something that happened consistently across the scripture. But for this time, the church was unified spiritually, one in heart and mind. They were unified materially. They shared everything. They took care of the needs of the people in the church. And by the way, this is exactly the kind of benevolence that the scripture calls for. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. And you can write this down for your own study, but in Galatians 6.10... Paul writes to the believers, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. In other words, the policy of benevolence that the Bible recommends is the church first. The church first first, and the needs of people in the church first. Not the person who comes to the door of the church, whom you can't verify whether their need is legitimate or not. Not the person who calls up and says, does your church help people? Yeah, come to a Sunday service sometime. Um, the scripture, the scripture, and I, and I know that what I'm saying is going to be easy for anybody to misunderstand, and I'm sorry that it is. But the biblical view of benevolence is the church first. The church first. And then those who are outside the church. In fact, I, I read a really magnificent paper some years ago about a whole concept of benevolence and the thesis of the person who wrote the paper, their thesis was that this kind of help offered to people of the church, people who belonged to the family of God, people who were in the church, was a sign to unbelievers that they ought to be part of this family. That it was an evangelistic tool. It was, uh, it, there was a lot more than that to it, but uh, at any rate, this is, this is what the Scripture is calling for. We take care of the church first. We take care of the church first. Well, so this is not communism. It's not socialism. Uh, the people of the church were led by God to take care of each other. By the way, it's really interesting how this, at least at this stage of the church, it's the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer in John 17. Remember, John 17 is called Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus' high priestly prayer. 
He said this, may they be brought, speaking of his disciples, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. At least at this stage of the church's existence, Jesus, what he asks for is exactly what's happening. They are unified spiritually. They were unified materially. And verse 33, God granted them boldness. God granted them boldness. Now, verse 36, we're introduced to Joseph that you and I better know as Barnabas. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. His Hebrew name was Joseph, but the name the church called him by was Barnabas. What does Barnabas mean? Barnabas means son of encouragement. In other words, he was so identified with his gift that he was called by his gift. Son of encouragement. When he'd come your way, you'd say, I am about to be encouraged. That's the kind of person Barnabas was. Barnabas the servant, Barnabas the encourager, Barnabas the one who encouraged the downhearted, Barnabas the one who encouraged the rejected, Barnabas the one who encouraged the discouraged, Barnabas the one who stood up for Paul when he first met the leaders in Jerusalem. Everybody stayed away from Paul except for Barnabas. What a, what a gifted man this is. And you know, we always, we, we think of gifts in different ways and we think of a different hierarchy of gifts and too many times we believe that people have, who have ministry gifts, people who have public ministry gifts, we sometimes rate that higher. Here is a man whose gift he was so identified with and his gift was Encouraging other people. By the way, do you like to run into people who are encouragers? Yeah, I think so. I think we all like to run into people who are encouragers. Unfortunately, sometimes we say, uh-oh, here comes old sourpuss. Here comes down in the mouth. Here comes complainer. Here comes gossiper. Here comes one-upsmanship. Don't you love that one? You know when you meet that person, you're going to be one-upped. It doesn't matter what it is. Do you ever hear people when they're talking about their medical issues? I love it. Well, I had a worse operation than you had. I had a worse disease than you had. You don't say it like that, you know, but it's... <laughs> Here comes old one-upsmanship. Here comes overbearing. Here comes never satisfied. 
Here comes has to have his own way. Not when you saw Barnabas coming your way. When you saw Barnabas coming your way, you knew you were going to be encouraged. You were going to be encouraged. Barnabas had what Chuck Swindoll called a yes face. Do you know what a yes face is? There are yes faces and there are no faces. Now let me look. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. And you get a chance to look back at me and say, uh, let, me, let me share with you. It's in his book, Chuck Swindoll's book, The Grace Awakening. And he shares a story about President Thomas Jefferson. He says, and I'm just going to share it from the book. <clears throat> During his days as president, Thomas Jefferson and a group of companions were traveling across the country on horseback. They came to a river which had left its banks because of a recent downpour. The swollen river had washed the bridge away. Each rider was forced to ford the river on horseback, fighting for his life against the rapid currents. The very real possibility of death threatened each rider, which caused a traveler who was not part of their group to step aside and watch. After several had plunged in and made it to the other side, the stranger asked President Jefferson if he would ferry him across the river. The president agreed without hesitation. The man climbed on, and shortly thereafter, the two of them made it safely to the other side. As the, as the stranger slid off the back of the saddle onto dry ground, one in the group asked him, tell me, why did you select the president to ask this favor of? The man was shocked, admitting he had no idea it was the president who helped him. He said, all I know is that on some of your faces was written the answer no, and on some of them was the answer yes. His was a yes face. Swindoll says, all of us are drawn to those whose faces invite us in and urge us on. All of us are drawn to those whose faces invite us in and urge us on. Barnabas was just such a person. Well, one writer said he was the Barnabas of the open heart and the acceptant spirit. Barnabas had the gift of exhortation, of comfort, of encouragement, a wonderful gift which he used so diligently that everyone began to call him by his spiritual gift. What a great thing, isn't it? To be so identified. Now, there are many more gifts than encouragement, but to be so, and I don't know what your gift may be. Oh, I know some of your gifts, but whatever your gift may be, isn't it a great thing? to think of being identified so with your gift that you're nicknamed that gift. Well, uh, some people, some, uh, many of you are astute Bible students, and you might be saying to yourself, so I'm going to try to answer this question quickly, you might be saying to yourself, if Joseph was a Levite, why did he have property? Because Levites weren't allowed to what? They weren't allowed to have land in Israel. So why did he have land? Three possible answers. I'll just give them to you quickly. Stanley Toussaint of, 
of Dallas Theological Seminary today of heaven. <laughs> He's in heaven. Um, he suggests three possible answers. Number one, that a Levite could not hold land in Israel, but Joseph was from where? Cyprus. He wasn't from Israel. He was from Cyprus and owned the land there. Number two possibility is that his wife actually owned the land. And the third possibility is probably the best choice here is that the restriction was no longer being observed. The restriction was no longer being observed. It's not the most important point of this passage, but I wanted to deal with it in case it's something that, question that came to your mind. Chapter 5. Now we get a different picture. A picture of a man and his wife named Ananias and Sapphira who are quite different than Barnabas. But they really liked the notoriety that Barnabas' action brought to him. The attention it brought to him. And they coveted that attention. So what do they do? Verse 1 of chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira. Ananias, by the way, means God is gracious. Sapphira means beautiful. It's Aramaic. Together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. Now up to there, there's nothing wrong with that. He had the right to keep the property, sell the property, give all of it to the church, give some of it to the church. He had the right to do anything with his material that he desired. But the problem is, he misrepresented to the church, and ultimately you're going to see in chapter 5 that to misrepresent to the church is to misrepresent to the Holy Spirit, is to misrepresent to God because the Holy Spirit is God. That's where he ran into trouble. He and Sapphira, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. They also sold property. They laid part of the proceeds at the apostles' feet feet, same phrase we have read earlier, and there was nothing wrong with keeping back part of the money. But what was wrong is they were trying to imitate Barnabas and the issue was pride and envy, what one writer called a pretense of generosity. They wanted the acclamation that Barnabas received without making a genuine sacrifice, one writer said. They loved praise. That was their sin. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land didn't it belong to you before it was sold? In other words, you could have done anything you wanted with it. 
And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? After you got the money, you could have done anything you want with it. What made you think of doing such a thing? Why would you come and lie? And then he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. You have not lied to men, but to God. By the way, there's so many things here. Let me quickly hit a couple of them. Number one, this is one of the passages in the Scripture that prove the deity of the Holy Spirit. Now we know the Father is God. We know Jesus is God. That was settled in many ways that I won't go through right now, except for one where doubting Thomas bowed before him and said, My Lord and my God, which was clearly a reference in the mouth of a Jew to Yahweh of the Old Testament, saying that Thomas was saying Jesus is deity, God incarnate. Well, this is the central passage, Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, is the central passage about the deity of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. In verse 3, Peter said, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And in verse 4, he said, you have not lied to men, but to God. You have not lied to men, but to God. So the Holy Spirit is God. Secondly, it also, uh, there's so much theology here, it's fantastic. The Holy Spirit is also a person, not a power, not an influence as some people make him. Why? Because you can't lie to an influence. But you can lie to a person. You can't lie to an influence, but you can lie to a person. So we see here in this little passage that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is a personal being. But there are some other things here I don't want you to miss. Peter said in verse 3, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? I want you to please underline the word or highlight it in your electronic copy of the Bible, the word filled, because in Greek it's the word plerao, and it's exactly the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 in his command to you and to me, be Filled, play ra'o. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what, why is that important? It's important because being filled with the Holy Spirit has the idea of the control or influence or dominance of the Spirit. That's why we're told to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be under the control of the Holy Spirit, to be influenced by the Holy Spirit, to be dominated by the Holy Spirit. That is what you and I are to do as believers in Jesus Christ. But the really serious thing here is that Peter is saying that Ananias could be influenced, controlled, dominated by whom? Satan. He's a believer in Jesus Christ. And yet he can be dominated by Satan. He can be influenced by Satan. He can be controlled and used by Satan. That's a scary thought, folks. That's a scary thought for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. That if we take our lives in a certain direction, if we embrace our sin nature, if we embrace sin in our lives. And I don't mean one sin here and one sin there. I'm talking about embracing a lifestyle of sin. If we do that, then we can actually be influenced not by God, but by Satan. 
that we can actually be dominated not by God, but by Satan. That we can actually be controlled not by God, but by Satan. Satan had gained influence and control over a believer. That's a sobering thought. One writer said, Christians can not only be influenced by the Holy Spirit, but they can also be influenced by Satan. How is it, Peter says, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? In other words, Ananias, what's happened in your life? Where did you take that wrong turn? What's happened in your life that you gave Satan this entree into your life? And we have to ask, what direction is my life going? And what am I giving free reign to in my life? that could lead me to the place where rather than having the control or influence of the Holy Spirit, I am controlled or influenced by Satan. Well, verses 5 and 6, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Great fear seized all who heard what had happened. <laughs> That's, you can imagine, right? Up till then, it's like, woohoo, let's join this group. And then it's, wait a second, let's not join this group. In fact, that's how the verse 11 ends. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. See, God was purifying the church there. God was purifying the church there and making the point that the purity of the church is important to Him. This was God's discipline on Ananias' life. Some people ask, why so severe? Why such a severe thing? It doesn't generally happen today. That's true. God generally doesn't take the life of a believer who sins. There are a few instances, by the way, that the Scripture does talk about death resulting uh, from sin. Real quickly, all, all death results from sin, from the sin of Adam. All death results from that. For by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, Romans 5.12. Death came into the world, because Adam turned his back on God, and we, in him, him as our representative or seminal, seminally in him, all the people of the human race were in his body. In a way of, in a manner of speaking, we sinned in him. So death came upon everybody. That's why everyone dies. But there are certain times when the scripture talks about a believer dying early, that is God taking them home early because of unrelenting sin in their lives. Am I making that clear? Not a sin here, a sin there, but unrelenting sin, unrepentant sin. God will take that person home early. 1 Corinthians 11.30, 1 John 5.16, James 5.20, 2 Timothy 2.19, where Paul said, believers must turn away from wickedness. Why this serious 
judgment at this stage? Well, because what God seemed to do all through the scripture is that at a turning point or at a time when something new is beginning, God will take that step. This is the beginning of the church. This is the institution of the church. The church isn't very old when this happens. So God takes this step to get everybody's attention. It's similar to the Old Testament and Achan. Do you remember the story of Achan in the Old Testament? Is the Israelites finally under Joshua were taking the promised land. The first place they went to was what? Not yet. The first place was Joshua the battle of very good. Let's do it again, Josh. If it's the battle of... All right. <laughs> and they had a great victory, and all they did was march around, blow trumpets. The walls fell down. They went straight in. There's a little more to it than that. But God had said one thing to the people. What was it? Don't touch any of the spoils. And nobody did, and they had a great victory. And so Ai was the next place. Ai was just a small place. The spies said, hey, just send a handful of people, soldiers up there. That's all it's going to take to get to that, those people. And they were defeated mightily. And Joshua asked God, why did this happen? And God, there's a whole longer story than this. I've got to really make it shorter. God said, pointed out, Achan had taken some of the devoted things. That's what they're called. All of the spoils were devoted to God. And he saw some shiny objects. And we're all interested in shiny objects. And took some and hid them in his tent. It cost him his life and the life of his family. Why did God do that? because they were about to take the promised land. When God does something new or the people of God enter into a new, new time in the plan of God, God will do something spectacular in judgment. And that's what this is. The word died here is used of divine judgment. And interestingly enough, the words kept back are the same words in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. The same words translated kept back here in our passage in Acts are the same words in the Septuagint for what Achan did. You see the connection? By the way, a lot of times people ask, how am I supposed to understand the Old Testament? Well, Paul told us in 1 Corinthians, and I think it's 10, and I'll come get back to you next week. <laughs> that these things were given to us for examples for our lives. In other words, the Old Testament wasn't given to us so we could be under the law or live legalistically. The Old Testament was given to give us an example of what happens in the lives of God's people and things to avoid and things to embrace. Uh, that's, that's an aside. We've got to move on. So this is God's discipline. Well, verse 7, about three hours later, his wife came in 
Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the peace you and Ananias got? Is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? What does testing the Lord mean? Stanley Toussaint, once again, gives us a great, a great way to understand that. To see how much what is testing the Holy Spirit is to see how much one can get away with before God judges. It means to presume on the Holy Spirit, to see if He will perform His Word, or to stretch Him to the limits of judgment. There's one thing you and I don't want to do, and that is stretch the Holy Spirit to the limits of judgment. Peter said, How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door. They'll carry you out also. At that moment, she fell dead at his feet and died. Then the young men came. She fell at his feet and died. Sorry, I misread that. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. They did that, by the way, in that climate because it was so very hot that they could not keep bodies very long. So they generally buried them the same day. She was buried beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and Hall who heard about these events. One writer said, And while we may be thankful that judgment upon deceit in the church is not now so swift and drastic, this incident stands as an indelible warning regarding the heinousness in God's sight of deception in spiritual and personal matters. Let me give you this real quick summary. Some people ask, what was the purpose? What was the purpose of this event? What was the purpose of this account? Let me quickly give you five. As I have studied this passage over many years, I have collected the uh, purposes that many people have assigned to this act. Let me share five real quickly because I think they are good and right Number one, it revealed God's displeasure with sin, especially dishonesty in the body. Number two, it marked the church off as distinct from Israel where such discipline wasn't seen at that time. Number three, it indicated that God was at work in this new group and it indicated how seriously God takes the church. Number four, and this one is something we should not overlook. It illustrates that there is to be a radical break with the old life. You and I are to have a radical break with the old life and the old sin nature, the way we lived, the way we thought, the way we acted before we came to faith in Christ. We can't hold on to those old sins and drag them into the new life and say, I really like them. I'm comforted by them. I like to be able to do them. No. No, we're to make a break with the old life. A radical break with the old life. Sometime, I don't have time to turn here, but please look up Ephesians 4, 22 to 32, which lists the things that grieve the Holy Spirit, that hinder the free working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The sad thing is that according to 1 John 2, 9 to 11, believers may choose to live in the realm of darkness, which is Satan's domain. Number five, 
they had disturbed the unity of the church, which was a sin against the Holy Spirit who had so recently formed the church and made it one. Let me close with the two questions that I gave you at the beginning. And I hope that each of us will take some time before God to ask these questions. How am I using my gifts, talents, and resources to build the unity of the body? And secondly, am I dealing with wrong attitudes and actions, the sin in my life? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the example of Barnabas. May we be Barnabases. May we be those who are known by our gift, by the expression of our gift. And Lord, may you use our gifts to build the unity of this body. And Lord, we pray that we are dealing with the sin in our lives. Thank you for this passage of scripture in Jesus' name. Amen.